Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us today for this Cato Capital Hill briefing. My name is Heather Curry-Karch, and I'm the Director of External Affairs for the Cato Institute. I'm joined today by several of my colleagues and our guest speakers. And we're also glad that you can be here to participate in what promises to be a very interesting and informative conversation about the current state of the U.S. immigration system, particularly the challenges facing those hoping to live and work in the U.S. legally. During this briefing, we will hear about policy solutions and opportunities to reform the system to really make it better able to respond to the needs of the people as well as our 21st century economy. To ensure that we have enough time to hear from all four of our speakers and get in a healthy Q&A, I'm going to do some brief speaker bios. Uh, full bios are available in the packets on your seat as well as some of the supplemental materials from uh, some of our uh, speakers today. Many of the materials will be available on Cato.org following the briefing. Um, and you can reach out to myself or Maria Vargas in the back of the room if you're interested in connecting with any of the Cato scholars here today. So following the, uh, the bios, each speaker will present for about 10 minutes, and then we'll move into the Q&A. So if you can hold your questions until the end, that would be great. So our first speaker is David Beer. David is an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. His research is focused on visa reform, border security, and interior enforcement. Prior to Cato, David was a senior policy advisor for Congressman Raul Labrador and served as the director of immigration policy at the Niskanen Center. Today, David will provide an overview of America's immigration policies and explain why they have failed to adjust to changing times. Following David will be Stuart Anderson. He is executive director of the National Foundation for American Policy, as well as, as an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. He spent four and a half years on Capitol Hill on the Senate Immigration Subcommittee. Prior to that, David was Director of Trade and Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute. Today he will discuss, I'm sorry, Stuart, my apologies. <laughs> Today Stuart will discuss how current law drives away high-skilled immigrants and how America should compete for foreign talent. Next we will hear from Daniel Griswold. Daniel is a Mercatus Center Senior Research Fellow and Co-Director for the Program on the American Economy and Globalization. Griswold is a nationally recognized expert on trade and immigration policy. He has testified before congressional committees, authored numerous studies and articles, and addressed business and trade groups around the world. During today's briefing, Daniel will provide the important, will detail the importance of, um, sorry, I've lost my page, America's seasonal worker programs and present ideas on how to improve them. Finally, we will hear from Alex Narasta. Alex is an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. His popular publications have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and the Washington Post. And he is a co-author of the booklet, Open Immigration, Yay and Nay. Alex received a BA in economics from George Mason University and a Master of Science in Economic History from the <coughs> London School of Economics. Today he will give new ideas on how to improve legal immigration policies. Having said all that, please help me welcome our first speaker, David Beer. Hello everyone, thank you for being here. Um, as was mentioned, my name is David Beer. Alex and I handle all matters immigration-related for the Cato Institute, and uh, we work on this issue pretty much 24-7. Uh, I think Alex can attest to that. So if you need feedback on anything or want our comments on uh, pending legislation or have questions about any topic, we're more than happy to engage with you one-on-one uh, -on -one in, in greater depth. I just wanted to kick off today's uh, panel by putting legal immigration in the United States as it currently exists into some context. Uh, so let's start here. Um, as you can see, the foreign-born share 
of the U.S. population is about 13 percent, a little more than 13 percent of the, the population, uh, which is still below the highs of the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, where does this share rank the United States compared to other nations? Um, among the developed nations of the world uh, for the OECD countries, the United States ranks behind nine other countries in terms of the share of foreign-born population, but the United States also gets a little bit of extra credit for the large number of illegal immigrants who live in the United States. So adjusting for its uh, uh, share of illegal immigration, um, we have less than 10% of the population who were born abroad and live in the United States legally. This puts us uh, 15th in the world behind 14 other countries. Uh, this includes um, former British colonies, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, uh, who have between um, 20 and 30% of their populations are foreign born. But America ranks even lower if you look at the current flow. What's happening right now in terms of the number of new permanent residents who are invited into uh, these uh, developed countries as a share of their populations. Um, in fact, there are, four, there are sorry, 17 developed countries that have higher rates of immigration as a share of their populations than the United States does right now. Again, our neighbor to the north has a immigration rate uh, that is twice as high as the rate uh, for the United States. Uh, where does this flow rank the United States in U.S. history? Um, as you can see, um, the current rate of one-third of one percent of the population is about half the average rate in uh, American history. And uh, if you look at the historic highs in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, those highs were four to five times as high as the rate is right now. America's current immigration rate is, not, is neither abnormal or, uh, nor unprecedented. Um, but if our immigration rate is so much lower than it was in the early 20th century, um, why is it that our share of foreign-born is now reaching an all-time high, uh, uh, you know, almost as high as it was back then, even though our rate is so much lower? The answer is we have much lower birth rates uh, today. Um, if population growth had continued at the same rate that it was in the early 20th and late 19th century, uh, as this graph shows, um, you would have about half the share of foreign-born residents in the United States. Even if we had the same number of people coming in, in, a, in absolute terms, the relative share would only be about half uh, what it is today. So what's unprecedented right now is not our rate of immigration, but our rate of reproduction. Um, with this in mind, let's turn to how immigrants come to the United States uh, right now. Uh, ignoring the amnesty in 1986, immigrants to the United States have come to the United States uh, in four main ways to live permanently uh, in the country. An important fact to keep in mind is that although when we're talking about the number of new immigrants to the United States, um, we're talking about 
the number of new legal permanent residents and about half of our legal permanent, new legal permanent residents initially came into the United States on a temporary visa as a temporary worker or a tourist or, or something along those lines. And uh, that, those uh, temporary programs will be discussed in more detail uh, later on. Um, in any case, starting at the bottom, we have uh, programs that issue visas based on where people were born uh, primarily. Uh, right now, that would be the diversity visa lottery program, which accounts for about 4% of uh, US legal immigration. Um, then we have refugees and asylees at about 10% uh, of the flow. And then after that, we have two types, uh, broad types of um, family-sponsored um, immigrants. These are people sponsored by their immediate family in the United States. Uh, in the blue, we have uh, parents, siblings, and adult children of US citizens, as well as uh, spouses and minor children of legal permanent residents. Uh, immigrants who haven't naturalized yet. And then in the green, we have spouses and minor children of US citizens. Uh, these categories add up to about 70% of the flow. And then at the top, we have uh, immigrants who are sponsored by an employer. That's about 13% of the flow. And it's important to note that half of these employer-sponsored immigrants are actually the spouses and minor children of the workers. Um, if you look at the actual number of workers uh, as a share of the overall flow, it's only about 7% of legal immigrants are sponsored by an employer. Um, for comparison, um, Canada allows roughly the same rate of family-sponsored immigration as the United States does uh, as a share of its population. Uh, they allow about twice as much uh, humanitarian immigration, refugees, asylees, as the United States does. But the real difference is on economic immigration. They allow almost more than 10 times uh, the amount of economic-based uh, immigration to Canada. Uh, turning to the education of the immigrants by category, if you look at the employment-based immigrants, about 90% of them have a college degree. Um, this compares to about 90% of refugees who do not have a college degree. And then the family and diversity categories are right in the middle. About half uh, of them have a college uh, degree. Um, if you compare the United States uh, legal immigrants overall to uh, recent immigrants to Canada, um, the comparison is pretty favorable to the United States system in terms of uh, education level. <clears throat> U.S. recent immigrants uh, are about half, about half of them have a college degree, and uh, the same is true in Canada. The United States is a little bit more likely uh, to have uh, immigrants with advanced degrees. Of course, it should be noted that Canada allows far more uh, immigrants overall, so they have far more uh, skilled immigrants entering as a consequence, as a share of its population. Um, if you compare the US-born population to recent immigrants to the United States, uh, again, it's very favorable for uh, US uh, recent immigrants. Uh, again, about half of them have a college degree, and uh, the US-born population, only about 30% uh, of adults have a college degree. 
Uh, this is really important. The education level is really important because uh, education is a good predictor of future earnings uh, for immigrants. And the National Academy of Sciences uh, used that fact to uh, predict the amount of uh, taxes and, and benefits that immigrants would receive over the course of their lifetime. And using the average of its estimates, um, as you can see, it concluded that immigrants over the course of their lifetime to all levels of government will contribute uh, $150,000 more in taxes than they receive in benefits over the course of their lifetime. Um, obviously, those with college degrees are significantly more fiscally positive, um, but all levels of education, it found, were fiscally positive over the course of their lifetime, except <coughs> for uh, high school dropouts um, are fiscally negative. But even there, it found uh, this, this chart shows people over the course of their lifetime, uh, the, the fiscal effect uh, is negative during childhood, but then becomes positive for all education levels uh, during their working lives. Uh, so during their working lives, they're paying in to the system more than they're taking out. Uh, it, it's only during retirement that it again turns uh, negative. And so uh, really what this sh shows is that uh, if you have people, immigrants in the United States who are working, uh, you can guarantee that they are fiscally uh, positive for the country. I think this uh, could have very important implications for policy, as we hear um, uh, from the fellow panelists uh, coming up. Um, now, uh, I, I wanted to make one last policy point um, in conclusion, and that's if you consider the quotas that were instituted in 1990. That was the last time Congress had updated the immigration uh, system to the United States. That uh, system that it was created in 1990 um, has not been updated since then. And this is uh, a problem if you consider the fact that the population in the United States has, has grown by 30%. The economy has doubled during that time. And yet these quotas have not increased. And so uh, we have far more families um, in the United States now than we did in 1990, but the family-sponsored quotas are the same. And this disconnect between a dynamic market economy and a growing population and a static immigration system results in lengthy waiting times for immigrants uh, to come to the United States, and it, uh, and it results in an antiquated immigration system. And so uh, one idea that I think should be considered and, and is relevant to all the presentations that will follow me is that if you want to design an immigration system going forward that does not become quickly outdated um, you want to build in flexibility into the quotas. And that means either letting the market decide the number of families and, and uh, workers who enter the country every year, or tying those quotas that you do establish for whatever categories Congress ultimately decides upon to either the economy as it grows, uh, the, the numbers grow, or to the population um, as the population of the United States grows, the numbers grow. Um, so uh, it, the, this graph shows the, the flow of family-sponsored 
uh, immigrants to the United States compared to the U.S. population. Obviously, it, the growth in the family-sponsored preference categories that have quotas has not kept up uh, with population growth. And uh, the same is true for employer-sponsored uh, immigrants as well. Uh, the employer-sponsored flow has not kept up with the growth in the economy. And so if we want to have a system that uh, is reflective of the needs of Americans, uh, we should build in the types of flexibility that other countries have uh, in terms of the numbers of, of immigrants that they allow in. Uh, and with that, I will turn it over to uh, Stuart. Great, thank you for inviting me here. And um, I'm gonna talk about the big picture on employment-based immigration and discuss what the Trump administration has been doing. <clears throat> I mean, probably the first question is, why should anyone care about this? And I'm gonna just paint the picture a little bit uh, based on some research. Uh, when I've looked at, for example, uh, cancer research in America, I found that the top seven uh, cancer research institutes in the United States, uh, about 40%, in fact, over 40% of the researchers are immigrants, uh, primarily people who came in uh, as high-skilled immigrants. Um, when you look at, uh, at top uh, startup companies in America, I looked at, uh, I think at the time, about 87 uh, kind of pre uh, pre-stock market companies, pre-IPO companies, and uh, that were privately held, and uh, found more than half of them had at least one immigrant founder. Many of them are these cutting-edge companies that all of you have heard of and have used their products. Um, when you look at, uh, at graduate schools in America, uh, international students uh, represent about 80% of the full-time graduate students in electrical engineering and computer science at U.S. universities. Uh, and when you look at uh, another interesting indicator would be um, at the, uh, what's the high school students. Uh, I've gone over a period of different years to the Intel, was, was the Intel Science um, Talent Search competition, the top high school science students in the country, and the most recent year I went, uh, I found that among the 40 finalists, 83% uh, of, of the finalists had, had parents who were immigrants. Uh, many of them had come in as H-1B visa holders. In fact, there were much, many more parents uh, who had come in on H-1B than, than the children had parents who were born in the United States. Uh, so it's, it, it was in, interesting in that it's another contribution of immigrants that many of us, including myself, had ever thought of. Uh, but it's these, these children, in many cases, may make even bigger contributions than their parents. One of the most important things to remember about, about, this, about this issue is that, as any attorney will tell you, that an H-1B visa is often the only practical way to hire a high-skilled foreign national or an international student to work in the United States. So when you hear someone say, well, we should just eliminate that, or we should put this or that restriction on it that make it very difficult to use the visa, 
Keep in mind that you may very well be preventing uh, high-skilled people from even having a chance of working in the United States. In fact, it already is quite difficult because for the past 15 years, uh, the supply of H-1B visas has run out. Um, as David alluded to, uh, the, the original limit, although it's been changed a little bit since then, uh, was set back in 1990 when we had a quite a different country. Uh, I mean, just think about all the changes we've had since 1990, not only the statistics that David mentioned, but uh, for example, the World Wide Web really didn't even exist as a, as a global entity uh, that was used by individuals back, in, back when the 1990 Act was put together. Um, you know, smartphones, social media, all of these things have combined to dramatically increase the demand for high-skilled labor, uh, yet we've had essentially the same quotas that we had, not only on, high, on temporary visas for H-1B visas, but also for the employment-based green cards, which is another key part, key part of this. To stay here permanently, you have to get an employment-based green card, and that limit is 140,000. That was set in 1990. And there are also per-country limits uh, that are set within that. And what that means in practice is since many of the people coming are from India and China, and particularly from India, the wait times are often 10 years or even much longer uh, projected, much longer than 10 years uh, to wait to get a green card. That means they're often stuck in H-1B status for many years. Uh, there, there actually is legislation, uh, HR 392 by Rep Representative Yoder, that has, I believe now, almost 320 <laughs> co-sponsors. Uh, 320 co-sponsors is pretty remarkable for any piece of legislation, yet it hasn't moved. Um, if it does move at some point, it, what it would do is basically equalize some of the waiting times, and particularly for people who are waiting a long time from India, it would actually give them a chance to immigrate much, much sooner, uh, and in some cases, almost immediately, because some of those people have been waiting uh, a very, a very long time, and they're at risk of having to leave the country if, if their employer closes down, for example, and they're not able to get a, another job. Now, when the, the Trump administration has often used the phrase merit-based immigration, but probably the most important thing to know about this topic is that when the Trump administration says they want merit-based immigration, they're really not talking about adding one million scientists and engineers to the United States. In fact, they're not talking about any uh, additional high-skilled people. Really, what they're talking about is just having fewer immigrants come into the country, particularly fewer uh, family-based immigrants. And, and Dave and I did a number of analyses of, of the different proposals, and sometimes the cuts would, would really come up to almost 50%, which would have a lot of d different um, bad economic uh, outcomes, uh, different than some of the restrictions on the high school immigration, but also would be bad, would be bad for the country for many reasons. Um, so when you talk to, and I've talked to um, many attorneys and asked them if they could name anything the Trump administration has done to make it easier for a high-skilled foreign national to either work or remain in the United States, they can't come up with any. I mean, not one. I can't get one, one, one policy that's, that's taken place, which really shows merit base is really just a slogan. It's really not something that's happening in practice, for, for, especially for the things that they can control. I understand legislation, um, an administration can't control necessarily what passes. Um, but when it comes to regulatory issues, they do have control. And, and, 
and really, if you ask companies and attorneys, um, they will tell you this is the most hostile administration they've ever seen uh, for, towards high-skill immigration. Uh, and let me just go through some of the policies that have been, that have been going through because uh, uh, there's, there's actually quite a few. Now, the overarching uh, executive order that has given the impetus for a lot of these has been called the Buy American and Hire American Act. And that's been used to justify a lot of the, the different a lot of the different policies. Uh, now, one of the things, for example, that's been done is they no longer give deference to, to prior adjudications. What that means is that when someone was on an H is on an H-1B and they got approved for three years, um, when they went back for the next three years, all of a sudden it, it, the adjudicators are acting almost like it's a clean slate. Uh, and that can obviously be very disruptive for companies and obviously for the individuals as well because, it, because there's already been cases of people who, who are no longer approved and they have to leave, and they have to leave the country. Um, there are many, the denials have been going up and, uh, and particularly the request for evidence, which is when an adjudicator uh, asks for, for more information. Uh, that delays the application potentially for many months. And depending on the type of, of type of application, if it's something for someone who's coming in for a particular project on another type of visa, say an L visa, um, it may be almost as good as a denial in some cases because it may push it may push the approval time out for, to a very long time. Um, the in addition, um, they've had uh, they've had other types of uh, things they've done not through regulation but just through um, through kind of policy announcements, which is kind of different than I think a lot of other agencies operate. Usually you see regulatory actions as the key way. Now they basically have mostly done memorandum. There was one, one, one recently on what's called third-party placement, uh, which will make it uh, very, very much more difficult for, say, a U.S. company to receive services from, from different companies on, in not only in information technology, but also in the healthcare area and many other types of industries that offer services to U.S. companies. In other words, they're the ones that are gonna get hurt a lot, the U.S. companies who need to receive these services because it's gonna make it much more difficult. And I think the bottom line is what's gonna happen with a lot of these different proposals, it's just gonna, it's gonna push more work outside the United States uh, in order to be able to deliver the different services. Now, there's also on the regulatory front, there are a lot of different proposals. One, one that's going to be, that's been announced, but it hasn't been put out as a regulation yet, would actually change some of the definitions for who even is eligible for an H-1B visa uh, by changing definition of a specialty occupation. We don't know uh, what, the, what the substance of that is going to be, but I don't think anyone thinks it's going to be positive for, from a business perspective. Um, the Trump administration has announced that it's going to uh, rescind what is called the International Entrepreneur Rule, which would allow people uh, to be able to invest and create a certain number of jobs in the country and get what's called parole into the U.S. while they while they do that. Um, that's that's been announced that they're going to rescind that. Um, they are also um, have announced that at some point they will uh, alter but we don't know whether um, it'll be eliminated completely, what's called optional practical training, uh, which allows an international student to work for 12 months after graduation, uh, 
but if they're in a, in a science, technology, engineering, or math field, they could work an extra 24 months on top of that. It's called STEM OPT. And they've indicated they want to go after both of those, although we don't know, again, the substance of that. But I think it's already, as I'm going to mention in a moment, I think it's already having a negative a negative impact. Um, and then there's also another, another rule that was approved in the Obama administration that allows the spouses of H-1B visa holders, many of them, to, to be eligible to work. It particularly uh, is important for people who've been waiting a long time for the green cards and for their families, and particularly a lot of women from India who actually are, are often very highly educated, as educated as their, as their spouse, but are not able to, don't have the ability to work, which is different than really almost all the other uh, advanced economy countries allows, where they do allow spouses to work really almost as a matter of course on, on these high school temporary visas. Um, we don't know the date yet. It looks like maybe in the summer that they're gonna propose rescinding the regulation. Again, there's no real economic uh, reason to do this. Um, it, it's, it's, viewed, it's viewed very negatively um, in the high skill, uh, high skill community and particularly among, among, tech, among tech companies. It's gonna make it harder to retain people. And it also just seems to be in many ways a pointless exercise in just trying to really almost encourage people to leave to leave the country uh, by telling them we're going to make it you're make, we're going to make your life and your family's life more difficult to be in the United States, um, which again doesn't make a lot of economic sense, particularly if you're going to tell everyone that your policies are quote merit based. Um, and um, another one I would mention is on the. Uh, on the travel bans, that's another one that while it wasn't directly called uh, targeting people in employment based, some of the, the final versions of it did, did, uh, did affect work visas and Dave and Alex has done a lot of great work on that, on that issue. And, uh, and again, depending on how the Supreme Court ends up ruling, uh, we may end up seeing that type of thing used in other, you know, against other countries as well. Now, I do think that, that the policies already have had a have sent a very negative signal, uh, and I'll conclude with, uh, with some data that we recently um, found that was in a government report. And in looking at it, we found that the number of international students from India enrolled in graduate-level programs in computer science and engineering declined by 21 percent from 2016 to 2017. Um, and it, we need to, to keep an eye on that number going forward, uh, but it does seem like that the very negative signals they've been getting about the ability to work in the United States after graduation, um, the, um, the long waits that we've already seen on, on employment-based green cards, and um, some, of the, some of the proposed regulations that may come about that would make it harder for international students in the United States. I think all of them combining are combining to, to make, it, um, make it seem like the United States is, is not maybe the best place to come to get a higher education, particularly if you're looking to be able to work in the United States after graduation. So if I had to give one overall overarching policy recommendation, is if you wanted to have um, you know, a better policy towards high-skill immigration and you wanted to create more jobs in the United States and have more of the work done in the United States, 
um, then the best thing to do is basically to do the opposite of almost everything the administration has done so far. <laughs> Thanks. Excellent ending. <clears throat> well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. My message is a simple one. Low-skilled immigrants play an important role in the U.S. economy, and we should expand opportunities for lower-skilled immigrants uh, to come to the United States. The arguments are somewhat uh, different than high-skilled, but I think uh, just as important to our economy. I also want to talk about uh, maybe some concerns people have about low-skilled immigrants coming to the United States, and then ways we can reform our legal immigration system uh, to accommodate this, and also uh, not only to benefit our economy, but to make our borders uh, more secure. We are a high-tech, middle-class service economy, but we continue to create employment opportunities for low-skilled workers. Um, we have important employment opportunities in agriculture, restaurants and hospitality, uh, landscaping, construction, uh, food uh, processing, retail, freight moving. Uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics counts 35 million different jobs in this country that require no formal educational credentials. Um, and these are important to these uh, sectors. The availability of workers in those sectors allow those sectors to grow, to provide important goods and services for the American public. And by the way, it creates job opportunities for middle-class Americans in those industries who fill positions as accountants, sales representatives, managers, engineers. Meanwhile, on the supply side, the number of native-born Americans who've traditionally filled those jobs continues to shrink. If you look at the working age Americans, age 25 to 64, uh, who are out there without a high school diploma, that number has been shrinking inexorably in recent years. In fact, it's shrunk by 4 million, from 13 million to 9 million uh, since 2000. The number of low-skilled immigrants without a high school degree has gone up during that time, but by less than 2 million, so offsetting that uh, by less than than half. So you have a fundamental mismatch between supply and demand. This, of course, creates incentives for illegal immigration. What some people call the job magnet, I call supply and demand in a growing uh, economy. Uh, the, the lack of workers, if we're going to achieve 3% growth or more, the lack of workers uh, is retarding growth in our economy. Just this morning, the front page of the Wall Street Journal had an article about housing starts in America being significantly lower than they've been uh, in previous cycles at this time, making it hard for millennials and others to find affordable housing. The article said this, declining numbers of immigrant construction workers have sapped builders of unskilled labor. It's part of the, part of the story, and that applies to a number of other uh, sectors. And that means without sufficient legal channels of low-skilled immigration, uh, there'd be continued incentives for illegal immigration. Now, let me address a few of the concerns about lower-skilled uh, immigration. I don't dismiss them. Let me address them right up front. Um, <clears throat> Low-skilled immigrants have a positive effect on our economy overall. 95% of native-born Americans in the workforce simply don't compete head-to-head -head with low-skilled uh, immigrants. 
Uh, studies by Giovanni Perry and others have found that the vast majority of Americans, our wages are a little higher because of immigration. It's not dramatic. Uh, the one segment where immigration tends to have a negative impact among native-born Americans are those without a high school diploma, but as we saw, that's a small and shrinking number. And the impact isn't actually that large. It's one to two percent on their wages. Um, just staying in school and getting your high school diploma, your, average, your wages on average will be 37% higher than a, a high school dropout. So the answer isn't to restrict low-skilled Im immigration. It's to encourage more and more Americans to stay in school, get their high school diploma. And in fact, that's what's going on. Uh, immigrants have the effect of encouraging Americans to increase their education, to move into jobs that play more to their strengths in terms of language skills. Uh, Jennifer Hunt of Rutgers has done research that shows that as the share of immigrants in the population goes up, a higher share of Americans stay in school and get their high school diploma. As immigrants come in, Americans move up. That has been the pattern. More broadly speaking, it's, it's misleading to say with low-skill immigration, we're importing poverty into the United States. Um, in fact, uh, as, you, as you see, we aren't growing uh, the segment of the population that is working without a high school diploma. We're just slowing the demographic decline of it, allowing important sectors of the economy to continue uh, their, their productive capacity. And low-skilled immigrants tend to be more, shall we say, socially functional, maybe than low-skilled uh, American studies have shown that they have a... a so. Immigrants, compared to native-born Americans of a comparable educational level, the immigrants have a higher labor force participation rate, a lower crime rate. They actually make less use of government uh, income support, means-tested welfare. It is true, as David showed in one of his slides, that a, a, an immigrant without a high school diploma, uh, that, that's great if you can show that, um, will... <clears throat> But actually, the other, it's another slide I was going to queue up, but false, false alarm there. But <laughs> a, an immigrant who comes in without a high school diploma will have a $109,000 negative impact fiscally in terms of consuming more government services uh, than they pay in taxes. But that same study shows that a native-born American without a high school diploma in the workforce will have a negative impact of 250000 over their uh, lifetime. So the extent that low-skill immigrants encourage Americans to stay in school, they're actually uh, delivering a return to Americans. And, it, and you don't need to cue this up, but David had another slide that showed during their working years, from 25 to 60, even the low-skilled immigrants are net payers into the system, which to me is another argument for maybe on the low-skilled end, emphasizing temporary worker programs where the low-skilled immigrants come in during their working years and then through various incentives, we can encourage them uh, to go back to their home country. So you put all that together, what's the right policy response? It is to expand opportunities for legal migration to the United States, often temporary, uh, but also permanent under certain conditions. Uh, and we can uh, achieve this by making our current programs more user-friendly, both for the workers and the employers, and to expand the overall numbers. As you know, there are several proposals in Congress to do just that. The main 
temporary programs we ha have now are the H-2 programs, right? H-2A for agricultural workers, H-2B uh, for non-agricultural workers. Um, the big problem with these programs is that they're seasonal. Uh, that's okay for some agricultural areas, but a lot of agricultural interests are not seasonal. I'm from Wisconsin. Uh, the dairy industry there is not seasonal. The cows need to be milked twice a day, 365 days a year. There's other crops where they have multiple harvests during the season. And then, of course, you have meat and poultry processing, which is a year-around uh, industry. They need workers. And then, of course, non-agricultural uh, industries, uh, construction and others, are not generally seasonable either. Another problem with these programs is they're overly bureaucratic. Uh, they're difficult to use. That's why some employers just give up uh, uh, on them. <clears throat> and I think, again, there is some legislation in Congress that would address this need. Uh, they have inflated uh, wage expectations. You know, the prevailing wage is kind of a, a code for, for union-type uh, wages. I think those need to be relaxed. Uh, other requirements about employers providing housing and transportation. This isn't true in any other part of the economy. I don't think it needs to be uh, with low-skilled workers. And then, of course, uh, the numbers. I know David's uh, testified recently that more than 70% of hired crop farm workers are foreign-born, and about half of those are, are illegal. The number of uh, visas is just uh, in, insufficient. The proposed H2C Visa would address a lot of these bureaucratic problems, but my concern is, again, the numbers are not sufficient to meet the revealed uh, demand of the U.S. economy. Any immigration reform worthy of the name must address not just high-skilled immigration, but low-skilled immigration, perhaps in different ways, but they do need uh, to be addressed. There simply are not enough native-born Americans to fill these jobs in important sectors of the U.S. economy, and, and it isn't primarily pay. It's not just a question of paying more. It's often the working conditions, the status of these jobs. Uh, we're already seeing some automation in industries, but that's not the entire answer, especially in some agricultural sectors where there's just no substitute for a worker uh, out there uh, in the field. And if the farm sector can't hire, just like Stuart was saying about the high-tech sector, if the farm sector can't hire the workers they need, this production will move offshore and we'll just import uh, more uh, of these goods and there'll be less uh, job opportunities in those industries for middle-class uh, uh, Americans. Raising the number of visas will allow those sectors to maintain their production and employment. Let me just conclude by tying it in with border security. Uh, there's an established pattern in American history that uh, the more open we are to legal migration of low-skilled immigrants, the less illegal immigration we see. Great. This is where queue up, uh, there's another uh, David Beer slide. Um, this is an important story here. You see uh, when <clears throat> low-skilled visas are available, the yellow line, the number of apprehensions at the border, which is a good proxy, uh, the best proxy we have for illegal entrants, uh, it declines. And uh, during the long time from the mid-60s uh, up until the 90s, uh, when we had very little opportunity for legal migration here, uh, illegal immigration uh, went up. We saw that in the early 1950s with the Bracero program. We dramatically increased the number of visas, along with in increased enforcement 
and illegal entries dropped. In recent years, for various reasons, we have issued more uh, temporary visas, and again, combined uh, with border enforcement, uh, the apprehensions uh, have uh, gone down. Uh, Michael Clemens of the Center for Global Development's done some similar work. He's got a, a, a chart that looks a lot like this, looking just at Mexican uh, migration. If we allow more low-skilled visas, we won't have to waste precious taxpayer dollars on increased enforcement. You know, uh, fiscal conservatives uh, rightly charged with a number of government programs that we're just throwing money at a problem. Uh, whatever it is, you just spend more money and you consider it solved. Well, we should apply the same standard uh, to illegal immigration. Uh, I don't think the answer is to just throw more money at border enforcement. We've thrown a lot of money at border enforcement. If you look at the amount we've spent, the number of agent hours uh, at the border, 700 miles of fencing, uh, that is not the answer alone. Uh, we need to have more opportunities for low-skilled workers to come in. I think if you significantly increase the number of visas and made the program more user-friendly, um, it would have a far more beneficial effect than spending billions of dollars on a big, ugly, ineffective wall uh, on the border. So thank you very much. I look forward to your questions. I think there are two broad lessons we can take away from what we've heard today about the current uh, immigration and migration systems in the United States. First is that the numbers are very low and are insufficient for the current demands of the U.S. economy. The second is that the type of visas that are selected are probably not optimal and the current system is radically inflexible and unable to deal with the change in economy in the United States. What I'm going to talk about today are two proposals. Um, there's sort of uh, two proposals that would change a lot of the face of the current American immigration system. They are based primarily on experiences in other countries as well as some input from economic theory. Before going into them, I want to uh, emphasize that I do not intend for these proposals to replace entirely the current system, but to be additions onto the current system that will improve it. I think our job, um, both in think tanks but as well as uh, legislators, is to take a look at what the optimal choices are given the set of policies that we currently have and how we can improve these. So these are uh, some departures from current policy, but they're not radical in any sense. They are totally doable within the current framework of U.S. immigration law. The first I'm going to discuss is state-based visas, the idea of allowing U.S. states to sponsor temporary migrant work visas in the United States based on their own criteria in cooperation with the feds. And the second is an immigration tariff or the sale of visas to people based on uh, certain criteria. So first one, state-based visas. Um, the, there is a version of this bill that has been introduced by Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. I'm going to be talking about the House version of the bill and the specifics. This is one that has been written up by Representative Ken Buck of Colorado. It hasn't been introduced yet, uh, but the numbers are going to be based on this. The general idea is that the feds would set the number of visas, of visas allowed per state, an average of about 2,500 per state in the first year, guaranteed, uh, with another 2,500 uh, per state sort of divvied up by population. So a state like Wyoming will get 
somewhere barely above 2,500. A state like California will get, I think it's about 14,000. So it allows every state to have buy-in. Um, there are a lot of industries and states that require workers, but they have small populations. But it also makes sure that states with larger economies and more workers can uh, take more advantage of this program. The idea is that the states would regulate the visa. They would select the migrants, they would select the workers. They would have the term, it'd be a three years in renewable visa, but it could be less than that if the workers, if the state wanted it to, and they could renew the visa terms that they want to. They would also create the labor force tests. If there are unemployment requirements, labor, labor requirements, um, uh, wage requirements, types of industries they want for these workers to work in, other types that they don't want to work in, they would regulate that themselves. There's no forced participation. But most importantly, this is not just parallel to the federal system, but it would allow each state to create economic guest workers or migrant worker visas for any other types of industries they want, investors, entrepreneurs, any other type of visa that doesn't currently exist in the federal system, but would be regulated by uh, the states. The feds would, of course, be uh, hyper-involved in terms of admissions, in terms of uh, trying to weed out uh, uh, criminals, national security threats, sick, the other uh, people who are excludable classes of immigrants in the United States, but otherwise, in terms of the types of visas that are allowed to come in, the types of workers, the types of occupations, the types of industries, it would be up to the states. And this is important because states have radically different economic needs, radically different economies that have changed drastically over time. If you take a look at any state in the country, it's changed radically from 1990, uh, the last time we had a major immigration law revision, to today, just in terms of the types of industry, from healthcare. I mean, the internet was not an industry back then. It's a major industry in several different states. Uh, but also, it's changed uh, quite a bit between states. So Wyoming is very different from Colorado. It's very different from California in terms of the requirements. Uh, an important part of this is allowing, of course, states to sign compacts with each other. So just to give you an example, if a state like California uh, gets into compact with Oregon and Washington to share agricultural visas to take account of the shifting harvest and uh, planting patterns along the West Coast, and they should be allowed to do that, and those workers should be allowed to move between states if they agree on it. Now, of course, the number one issue with all this is enforcement. Uh, how is the system going to enforce itself? What if California, for instance, just to pick on a uh, boogeyman here, I'm, I'm from California, so I can do that uh, according to the rules. Um, just to pick on California, what if California allows in all these workers and then doesn't do any enforcement and then they all just become unlawful immigrants again and you have this big problem? We create a system or this bill creates a system that uh, has a carrot and a stick. So both a positive incentive, which is the carrot, and negative incentive, which is the stick, which is that for each year that a state um, makes sure that 97% of the migrants follow the visa, they get a 10% bump in the numbers the next year. So that's a positive incentive. They follow the rules. They get more visas if they want them. Uh, negative incentive. If, 90, if, lower, if fewer than 97% follow the rules of the visa, then their numbers are cut in the next year by 50%. So it's quite a heavy stick. Uh, they have to bond after the first year. That is, the workers or their employers has to establish a bond to, uh, that would be paid uh, if that person um, uh, absconds into the black market, becomes illegal. Uh, and there would be a 10-year suspension of all guest workers through the state-based visa program to states uh, if it happens for a fourth year. 
So it's quite a heavy suspension, quite a heavy punishment. This will incentivize that states, one, try to select trustworthy immigrants, that they try to work with good employers that keep these workers happy, that create good rules so that these workers uh, can stay with their employers and not abscond into the black market. And it also has what I call the anti-Frankenstein provision, uh, which is that the program works, it grows. If it doesn't work, it dies on its own. I like that. Uh, Wisconsin, I, this is an example of Wisconsin. This is under the 250,000 uh, visa year program. And the first year, based on the formula in the House bill, uh, Wisconsin, we get 4,750 workers. Uh, zero of them would be required to leave. Uh, second year, they get 5,235. Zero would be required to leave. Second year, they get 5,778. Zero would be required to leave. Now, this assumes that Wisconsin follows the rules in every year. Uh, and afterwards, you eventually build the stock of workers that are allowed to work in, Arizona, uh, in Wisconsin who are foreign-born in this program from about 4,775 in the first year to over 25,000 in the eighth year. Uh, this is if Wisconsin follows the rules. So we believe that this type of program would allow uh, basically a future flow that would satisfy the state's uh, requirements for migrant workers going forward. Uh, State-based visas exist in other countries. The Canadian Provincial Nomination Program, it's very large, very popular. 14% of all immigrants to Canada come in on this program. It's the second largest source for economic immigrants. Um, and the Australian Regional Immigration Programs, uh, they're pretty complicated, over, overly regulated, small numbers. Uh, so if you're going to look at something for inspiration, look at Canada. That's what this program, this bill uh, is modeled off of, S1040 is modeled off of. And it's important to also emphasize that these are not uh, green cards. They are not a specific path to citizenship for the worker, but they are dual intent. So if the worker finds a way to get a green card through another mechanism, like on the H-1Bs currently allow this, then they are allowed to get a green card through another mechanism, but they cannot use the specific state-based visa to go from being a worker directly into being uh, an immigrant. And it's only if they fit into another category. Uh, second program I want to talk about, immigration tariff. This would basically, the idea is that it would create a new visa category called a gold card. Uh, it would sell a numerically uncapped number of gold cards the federal government would at a fixed price uh, to migrants who meet the other qualifications. Uh, the gold card is not a path to citizenship, but it is also dual intent. So it doesn't lead to citizenship directly unless um, the worker or investor or purchaser of this is able to find another way. I created sort of a mock tariff schedule here. This is based partly off Table 814 in the National Academy of Sciences. I take some of the most pessimistic numbers about the net fiscal impact and then design a tariff uh, rates that would make sure that the amount that they pay in to the federal government would more than compensate for the most negative estimated uh, fiscal uh, impact uh, going forward. I have the age of entry here, the tariff rate on the right, and then the education level on the left. So tariffs are superior to the current system. Uh, using that uh, previous numbers that I put up there, if the current immigration flow, that is the flow that came between from 2013 to 2016 annually, based on their education and age, if they entered, they would pay uh, in one year a net uh, $11.1 billion in additional revenue to the federal government just that the flow looks like the current flow. That doesn't take account, by the way, of any other taxes that they would pay in terms of income tax, uh, property tax, or anything else. This is an addition to the current amount of money. 
Uh, it basically replaces with one price a lot of the enormous cost and fee to immigrants and employers of attorney fees. Uh, it uh, gets rid of the transportation to consulates cost, gets rid of a lot of the visa fees that are onerous and discriminatory uh, for basically no good reason to exist. Uh, it gets rid of a lot of the wait time and opportunity cost. So a lot of the cost of migra to migrants of a lot of the current visas is that they have to wait for a long time. They don't know if they'll be able to get in. This gets rid of it. It also kills smugglers, uh, kills a lot of bribery, and it kills the risk of uh, a lot of the risk of slavery. A lot of the tariffs that I put up there are actually less than the smuggling costs for many immigrants coming into the United States illegally that they already currently pay. This is a great way to undercut them. Uh, a worker could have the choice of paying a smuggler and the risk of going into slavery, or they can pay the price to the federal government and not have a risk of going into slavery. Um, I think that's a pretty good deal. An improvement, anyway, over the current system. I'll put it that way. Tariff examples. The United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, New Zealand levy substantial fees already on some categories of immigrants to offset the cost of social costs and social fees and welfare programs. Antigua, for instance, sells citizenship for $250,000. I don't think the United States should sell citizenship, uh, but selling a work visa or a permanent work visa program is certainly a big step in the right direction. The U.S. government can raise quite substantial amount of money by doing that. Uh, this is also not that different uh, compared to either historical examples in the U.S. or to uh, current examples. Uh, the United States started levying a head tax on new immigrants in 1882 of uh, 50 cents. It rose substantially after that. Um, currently, for each petition from an H-1B visa-dependent employer, that is an employer who has a large number of H-1B visas, uh, the, work, the employer has to pay about $4,000 already. That is a protectionist fee meant to protect the labor market. Um, it basically acts as a tariff. Uh, that money is supposed to be funneled toward workplace training, but uh, you know, as things happen, that's not always, doesn't have much of an effect, let me put it that way. Uh, Microsoft proposed in 2012 that they would like to pay $10,000 per H-1B visa or a green card in the year 2012. So there's clearly a lot of demand for this. There's a lot of people who want to do it, and it's uh, superior to the current system. So in conclusion, these two small reforms could create a functional and flexible skills-based immigration system based on the experiences from other countries. It will largely eviscerate and destroy much of the uh, black market in human smuggling and in unlawful immigrants being brought into the United States. It will likely increase economic growth and government revenue, certainly government revenue. There is a positive association between immigration and economic growth. We'd see an increase here. And it vastly simplifies the bureaucracy, which is something that I uh, think that we all like to do sometimes. Maybe we can have these uh, government employees do something more worthwhile or at least um, reallocated to more efficient uses of their time and of the taxpayer dime. So thank you very much.